1: Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're speaking about a topic that I'll tell you is one that I'm hearing so much about, whether I'm talking with a patient, whether I'm talking with a family member, someone on the street, anxiety, stress, uncertainty, these things have become even more a part of our vocabulary, it seems, than ever before. And I've got an amazing guest who's going to help us really find some hope in the midst of some challenging times. His name is Nick Nicholas. Nick, it is great to have you with us today.
2: Well, thank you. I really appreciate your having me on the show. I'm excited about having a conversation with you.
1: Nick, we are so glad to have you. A lot of folks, when they hear Nick Nicholas, they may immediately connect a a face with the name. You're a well-known professional speaker. You do a lot of life coaching. I know a lot of people who are... Excited about the work that Zig Ziglar has done. He was actually one of your mentors, is that correct?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, He was a a great man. I've uh, probably worked with him about 12 different times, and he helped me tremendously in growing my speaking career as well as my coaching
1: career. Tremendous. And you are also the author of a book. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Okay, certainly. Uh, The book is kind of a mini-autobiography in the early part of my life. Uh, I was raised with a very strong set of values and morals, and right was right, and wrong was wrong, and then three very tragic things happened over a period of eight years, and I took a rather dark path, not really proud of what happened, but I spent about 28 years uh, doing things that I probably shouldn't have, mm. and then I met an individual. I met a woman who uh, actually started me to changing my life because I had a different perspective on the word love. Hmm. And from that, I started working on rebuilding my life. Um, I started working with a, uh, with a coach mm-hmm. and uh, worked with him for 12 years, 13 years. Wow. And learned a lot, changed my life. One of the things that I learned uh, was ways to help me learn to manage fear. He hmm. always said, you can't control it, but you can manage it. And he said, once you learn to manage your fear, at that point, you have control of your life. And so that's what I wrote about in the book.
1: This is it's an exciting topic because so many people today are dealing with fear, whether it's fear of a virus, whether it's fear of economic uncertainty, whether it's a fear of uh, issues happening right in their own family, in their own tribe, tribal uh, environment or in an urban setting. We've got listeners, uh, Nick, I think you realize from all walks of life, even though the program is especially tailored for First Nation peoples. So, fear, help us. Someone right now, they're listening to the show. They're saying, this guy is speaking to me. Do you have some pointers that can help someone who's dealing with some really scary stuff?
2: Okay. Well, there's a, basically three areas I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about how we want, how we make our decisions and how fear affects those.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Every decision starts with a thought. And that thought is triggered from either a positive or a negative trigger. Okay. Every time you have a right now, let, let's just take a situation. Let's say that somebody has just lost their job. Mm-hmm. And immediately, I mean, that's, that's, that's very critical. Sure. I mean, the income has been cut off. We start to worry about our family. We immediately start thinking negative. How am I going to take care of my family? Am I going to wind up in a cardboard box under a bridge trying to take care of my kids? What's going to happen to me? Am I going to be homeless? Mm -hmm. And so all of that negativity, negative thinking, generates negative feelings. Every feeling is connected to one of two emotions, and there are only two emotions, love and fear. Fear. So if you're having negative feelings, those feelings are connected to the emotion of fear. Here is why that's important. The decision you make is going to be based out of fear.
1: This is an interesting uh, construct that you're sharing with us, Nick. I know a lot of folks, when they talk about the antithesis of love, they say it's hate. But I find it interesting that you're contrasting love with fear. Why do you do that in, in your way of envisioning the world?
2: For two reasons, actually. The first time that it was addressed was uh, 6 B.C. Hmm. by a Greek philosopher. And he made the statement that decisions and the directions of our life are controlled by one of two emotions, love or fear. Hmm. And then when I was working with my coach He also pointed out there's only two emotions, and everything else is a feeling connected to one of the two, and we make every one of our decisions emotionally first.
1: Hmm. This is very interesting, and I know some of my listeners are probably immediately resonating with what you're sharing. Others are scratching their heads and are saying, well, I'm going to have to hear a little bit more about this and think about it. Can you give us a a real-life example of someone, you mentioned the losing the job scenario, uh, maybe some people are dealing with that with fear as far as wondering what kind of work they're going to be dealing with in the future, whether they can get a job. I suppose others could be happy. It's a job they didn't like, and they're finally out of it, and they didn't have to make the decision. Can you work, walk us through just a little bit more how these two emotions play into a, a decision-making scenario after losing a job?
2: Absolutely. Be happy too. The key is to learn what fear re- – we know fear is an emotion. However, we're unable to really deal with emotions. We've never really been taught how to deal with emotion. Hmm. We just roll with them. I'm going to get, give you a definition of fear that everybody can work with to help them uh, to control their life. Fear is nothing but a question, and hmm. the question is – can I handle this? Am I going to be okay? Think about that. Hmm. Every time you've been frightened in your life, either consciously or unconsciously, you've asked yourself that question.
3: Hmm.
2: We normally answer it with, I don't know. Okay. Or, no, I'm not going to be all right, which takes us into the unknown. And the unknown is our number one fear. So we escalate our fear the minute we ask ourselves that question. Hmm. And so we immediately go into the whole fear thing, making our decision out of it. Here's what I'm going to say. And this is what I learned over 12, 13 years working with my coach and studying and doing research on my own. And that is this. Each of us have the skill, the knowledge, the ability, and the strength to handle anything that comes our way. The creator promised us that we would never have a load to carry greater than he would give us the strength to carry. Fair enough. Once we learn to believe that, not at the intellectual level, but at the heart level, once we know that, we can actually manage our fear. People say, my gosh, you know, how can I do that? How do I know that's going to happen? That sounds like a Pollyanna world to me. It really isn't. Look back over your life. How many times have you been in a situation where you were frightened? How many times have you been in a situation where you said, oh, my goodness, am I going to be able to handle this? But guess what? You handled it every time. may not have come out the way you wanted it, but you know what? You made, through it. You made it through. You handled it. You're stronger for it. You draw strength from it. You learn to be a better person as a result of it, but it wasn't fun going through it. The outcome may not have been what you wanted, but honestly, it was the outcome you needed.
1: No, I appreciate you giving us this perspective, Nick, because so many people, when it seems like life has dealt them a bad hand of retreat, they get depressed, they get anxious. And what I hear you saying is if we start to realize what kind of the emotional challenges for us. It's really to realize that the Creator isn't abandoning us, that there is a positive expectancy that we can embrace. And although that may help us on a mental level, someone might be tuning in and saying, well, yeah, it's fine to think everything's going to be all right, but that's not going to put bread on the table. That's not going to give me a new job. How does someone take that maybe greater sense of peace or love or whatever they're cultivating in place of the fear, how does that then translate into a different outcome? That's a very
2: good question. And uh, most of the clients that I work with basically ask me the same question. Mm-hmm. And basically, here's how I answer it. Certainly, I'm not going to be able to say, OK, you're definitely going to get the job you want or, or, you know, you're going to become a millionaire or whatever. What I can tell you is this. Fear does three things to us. It blinds us, it confuses us, and it paralyzes us.
1: Hmm.
2: Now, we've all heard the saying, when one door closes, another opens. Okay. However, what we don't understand is the door that opens does not open all the way. It just opens a little crack. Hmm. The fear, the paralyzation, the confusion blinds us to what that new door is. I'm going to give you a personal example. Please. In 2010, uh, I in, in when I was working full-time as a consultant professional speaker, I was on the road about 260 days a year. Wow. And my my wife and I were able to go through that because we were we were both military. And between us we've got 47 years. So we understood and knew how to handle the separations. However, I would have quit that and retired four or five years before 2010. But we were taking care of my father, uh, who was had run out of money, and he was in his late 80s. Mm. So uh, he passed away in August, and I decided in October to come off the road.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was one of those situations where we knew we had enough equity in our home. To be able to take out uh, a second mortgage so that I could find local work so I didn't have to travel. Mm -hmm. And that was about the time the bubble burst Uh. and found out that we were $55,000 upside down and had no equity. Wow. Well, we we went through the fear that everybody else went through. And then we sat down and said, okay, look, we understand how this fear works. We know that we're going to be able to handle this. And at that point, my wife said, "Why don't we go to Arizona for for Christmas and see my folks? Because their folks lived here in Arizona at the time." Mm-hmm. And when we came here, it became immediately aware that we need to be here to help them as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We went back. We packed up everything and made what we called our hillbilly, uh, our Beverly Hillbillies, move. Okay. Brought everything. Rented a place, and from there. All of my coaching, all of those things started taking place. They were never in my mind until that point. Mm. So by getting the fear out of my way, out of our way, we were able to make that kind of a drastic move and change our entire uh, life path, if you will.
1: I think it's such an inspiring story because a lot of folks tell me, well, I don't want to move, I don't want to go somewhere else, this is my home, and what I hear you saying is once the fear was gone, you really became open to other scenarios, things that might have been scary or uncomfortable, and as a result of going through those, it really opened up all kinds of other options that you probably hadn't even thought of, right?
2: Exactly. It opened our eyes to so many things that we had never seen
1: before. This is exciting stuff, Nick. We want to talk in more detail about some of the practical lessons that you've learned that can help us because so many are challenged. Whether it's uh, the individual who's tuning in right now or whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's uh, someone they see at uh, tribal gatherings or in the workplace, you have got a lot of insights how we can really take control of our lives, not letting fear run our lives. That's the message on today's edition of the broadcast. We're going to be coming back with more from Nick Nicholas. He's the author of the book, Reclaiming My Life. You can learn more uh, about Nick and his uh, consulting and his works, as well as listen to some of his podcasts at his website. We'll be giving you that information when we come back right after these important messages. Don't go away. I'm Dr. DeRose. More right after this.
0: Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at aianl.org. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, aianl.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this.
4: The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse.
2: For 13 and and one-half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved,
4: not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station.
5: I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General, at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with Nick Nicholas. Nick is a professional speaker, a former consultant, and a trainer for Fortune 500 companies. He's the author of the book, Reclaiming My Life. Nick, you've got a website that's got a lot of great material. I promised that to our guests. How does someone jump on and benefit from your podcasts and other resources?
2: Okay. The uh, website is Coaches. Dot com, and there are podcasts, <clears throat> and there are also some blogs, uh, a couple of testimonials of, from a couple of my clients from my uh, from my life coaching, and a lot of other information. And they're welcome to go out and look at that. If they're interested in the book, they can actually order the book from the website.
1: Great. So I've written down Nick, N-I-C-K, then the word coaches, like plural of coach c-o-a-c-h-e-s dot com have i got that correct you do have yes okay now i know one of the things that's probably going to come to some of our stations someone's going to call up they may even try to reach me and say hey is nick still doing life coaching what's the answer to that
2: yes i am i'm definitely doing life coaching as a matter of fact right now i've got I've got clients in two different states as well as in my home area here in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And I do some of my coaching by phone. Um, and that what matter of fact, there's a quick story about that. My sure. son came back from Iraq with a uh, major PTSD. Wow. He called me one night, said, Dad, I called to tell you goodbye. I said, what are you talking about, Chris? He said, I have my block nine at my Temple, and I'm ready to pull the trigger because he said I can't stand the pain anymore.
3: Mm.
2: I did everything I could. I said, "Look, you're worth it. You're good. you All the reasons why you should live." He wouldn't buy any of it. Wow. Finally, I just said to him, son, you are in Tennessee. I'm in Arizona. I can't stop you from what you're going to do. But before you pull the trigger, I want you to understand something. When you pull the trigger, your pain will end. My pain and the pain of your two, your two children." will only start and we will have that for the rest of our life. And he dropped the gun. Wow. Wound up with him for two and a half, three years and at this point he has absolutely no
1: PTSD. That is a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story. And it's
2: all done by telephone.
1: So there really is help through uh, through the phone and you're one of the people that if you will is on the front lines of, of that. Uh, nickcoaches.com I'm assuming that's the way to get in the queue as far as benefiting from your services?
2: Absolutely. It's got a contact point. Just click on the contact point, send me an email, and uh, I will get back to you.
1: Now, Nick, before doing the show, you and I had a chance to talk a bit, and I learned that your coaching services are sometimes uh, put into play even when someone is not signing up for them. You told me a fascinating story about a surgery you had a while back. Uh, Tell my listeners about that and some of the interaction you had with the health professionals?
2: Certainly be happy to. Uh, This would have been about uh, a year and a half ago. I had uh, six inches of my colon removed because of really bad diperticulitis. And the surgeon was very good, very good. But unfortunately, my colon was in such bad shape at that point, they had to give me one of those ileoscopies to wear. And as a result of that, I had to have a second surgery. Uh, and that was to repair the, or put the colon back together. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had a conversation. Well, as a result of it, I wound up with a blood infection mm. and wound up another surgeon that had to do a couple of things for me. And it seemed like every surgeon I worked with would, talk, I would wind up doing kind of a mini coaching session. We'd wind up having good conversation. One surgeon said to me, he said, Nick, he said, I'm very, very good at what I do. But he said, after talking to you and after reading your book, he said, I've learned that I, I need to make some changes. He said, I've brought a new concept into my practice. And I said, "What what is that? And he said, I am now going to be employing what I call it emotional medicine. Mm. And he said, what I've learned is that I can do my very best job. But unfortunately, if my patient is not in emotionally in the right place in a positive mindset, then everything I've done is going to be useless because the patient isn't going, probably isn't going to do well afterwards. So he said, I'm changing the way I approach my patients so that I can help them emotionally as well as physically with my surgery.
1: I mean, this is a powerful concept, and I hope uh, my Health professional listeners are really tracking with what you're sharing because I think so many of the patients that I have seen over the years are really emotionally hurting. It seems even more prevalent today than ever before. And it's one thing to be expert in rendering a diagnosis, prescribing a treatment, doing a surgery, doing some other procedure. But people, it seems, today more than ever, especially in this very busy rushed environment that we find ourselves in, are looking for that human touch. They're looking for people who care and can relate to them. And it sounds like these surgeons were really connecting with the power of compassion. Is that fair to say?
2: That would definitely be fair to say. We have to understand the connection between the body, the mind, and the spirit. And as a physician, you know yourself that somebody that is in high level of stress is putting themselves in a medical negative situation high blood pressure, uh, and a number of other things Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. can come from that. The other thing is that we will find a way to cope with that which we fear. And there's a lot of ways to cope. Some people overeat. Some people go to the bulimic side of it where they don't eat. Uh, Some people go to alcohol. I went to alcohol. Wow. I went four and a half years and never drew a sober breath. And I worked every. but nobody knew that I was staying drunk the entire time. I was a functioning alcoholic. But with the work I did with my coach and what I've learned from that, I no longer have an alcohol problem. I no longer have an alcohol problem. And so we have to understand that high stress drives negative behavior in a manner where we're trying to learn to cope. Rather than cope, I want people to learn how to manage fear.
1: I really like what you're sharing, and I know it's resonating with my listeners across demographic lines because I know some mental health professionals have said, you know, addiction is not something that just affects a small percentage of the population. All of us are prone to addiction. It just varies what that addiction is. And so whether we're talking about alcohol or drugs, whether we're talking about pornography, whether we're talking about workaholism, I mean, the list can go on and on. And what I think you're sharing with us, Nick, is some insights that everyone especially needs to hear right now because it's so easy when we're feeling stressed, when we're feeling anxious, when we're feeling under pressure, to retreat into those uh, uh, comfortable behaviors. And often those comfortable behaviors are destructive, whether it's, like you said, the alcohol or whether it's anorexia or bulimia. So help us kind of walk through this. Speak to someone right now who's listening. They're saying... Hey, this guy's speaking to me. I've got an alcohol problem, a drug problem. How do you help that person see that there is help when maybe they've failed treatment programs in the past or they've been sober for a month or two and then fell right back into the thick of things?
2: That's a very, very good question. I went through the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, all of that, and I've worked with a couple of people who have alcohol or addiction problems. Now, with drugs, there are some of the drugs that you can help them with, but some of these more, uh, the manufactured drugs and so forth. Once you're on those, that's a whole different, whole different ballgame. Um, the thing of it is, we have to look at what drove us to drink. Now, one thing I learned from my coach was, he told me, he said, Nick, five to ten percent of people who are alcoholics are seriously chemically dependent he said the other 90 percent are emotionally or psychologically dependent they're using the drug alcohol whatever to put themselves in the position to be able to cope with a very negative situation so let me share with you what happened to me and why that what they tell me is so, what they told me and what i went through is so true mm-hmm. between my junior and senior year my mother passed away. She and I had been very, very close. Wow. That was the first time I said, wait a minute. You know, I've always tried to do what's right. Why am I experiencing this very negative situation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Five weeks later, I found that the girl that I've been dating since I was a sophomore, and she and I had talked about getting married after we graduated, I found out that she was intimately involved with four of my friends. Wow. That was just a shock. So I go to college, and that's where I first made my big mistake. When I get to college, I said, there's no, it's no longer black and white. There's gray. And I made gray fit anything I wanted to do, and that is when I started drinking. Mm. Because I found that when I drank, I felt good. I didn't have to feel that negative emotional pain. Mm. Wound up getting married, eight and a half, had a, a wonderful wife, two beautiful children, a great job. Came home off the road one day early and caught my wife in bed with my best friend. Whoa! That, that that took me over the edge. I went to the dark side. I lived homeless for 45 days. I didn't stay sober at all the entire time. Every penny I got, mm. I put in alcohol. One morning, I woke up in a alley behind a federal building in Joplin, Missouri.
1: Nick, you've got us on the edge of our seats. Uh, we want to hear what happens. We do have to step away just briefly. Nick Nicholas telling his life story you can likely relate hopefully you haven't gone through something uh, quite uh, as dramatic maybe it's even worse what you've experienced there is a way out we'll be right back nick nicholas more right after these words
0: american indian and Alaska native living will continue in a moment if you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast please contact us on the web at o r g or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673.
4: The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse.
2: The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, mums and dads, put a watch on your mouth. As you relate to your children.
4: If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to. Someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one
3: to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph when blam! Ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you.
4: Don't text and drive. Visit stoptextstoprex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Heard-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit healthychildren.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with Nick Nicholas for the second half of today's edition of the broadcast. We are on the edge of our seats Nick has been sharing with us, wow, a lot of hardship as a young man. Then finally it looks like his uh, life is on track, happily married, couple of kids, finds his wife in the middle of an affair, and everything just spirals out of control. So you really were homeless. You were drunk, laying in an alley, did I hear that right, in Joplin, Missouri? Yes,
2: yes. I had been on a very hard drunk that night. And I passed out in an alley. I was dressed very lightly. And I woke up the next morning. Somehow or other, I pulled some newspapers over me to try to keep the wind from blowing on me and making me colder. And I woke up with what I've always referred to as the mother of all hangovers,
3: Mm. stumbled
2: into the federal building looking for coffee. The only office open was the Army Recruiting Office. That day, I got the coffee, but I also got the first step back towards reclaiming my life, bringing myself back where I should be. However, I was still taking the dark road.
3: Hmm.
2: I was still taking the dark road. My dad told me one point, and this is not a compliment, he looked at me and he said, Nick, I'm going to tell you, you're probably the best con man I have ever met. Wow. And he did not mean a compliment. Uh, I was drinking, I was womanizing, I was doing all the things you're not supposed to do. But I was covering it up with the fact, well, hey, you know, G.I.s are always doing crazy stuff, so it's all right to do that. Mm. And But that was the way I moved for 28 years. What happened during that period of time, I was living outside of my self-image. Now, this is important, I think. Mm -hmm. We all have a self-image, and that comes oftentimes between 6 and 10 and so forth but it changes over the years. That self-image is surrounded by our comfort zone. Our comfort zone takes in those behaviors that support how we see ourselves. When we step outside of that, we become extremely uncomfortable and fear jumps up because we're acting different than how we see ourselves.
1: So, Nick, when you talk about this self-perception or this concept of who we are, this identity, if you will, are you basically talking about things that we would say even affect how we view right and wrong, how we view proper behavior, those kind of things?
2: Oh, absolutely. If you will look at, if you go back to the late 40s, the 50s, and even the early 60s, the way children were raised, the morals and and all of that, that they were taught. And then you look at what's happened over the years. If you look at the at the decade of the 60s, that is when we—and uh, I've heard several people refer to it this way—when America lost her soul. Hmm. And then as you move forward it with that, you know, into the 70s with all the free love and all of that. But people accepted it, and we've come to the point now, I think, that it's fair to say that what was right in the past is now considered wrong.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What was wrong in the past is now accepted as being right. And that is, we're able to do that. Those that are able to do that is because that's how they see themselves. That's how their self-image was developed. The key being, you want to win the game. And that's determined by who has the most marbles at the end of the game. And the end always justifies the means.
1: Now, I know, Nick, that you're a spiritual man, that your values transcend uh, finances, and things of that nature. And I know throughout Indian country, if you look at the values of people throughout history, usually a much more altruistic motivation. One of my favorite illustrations from one of the first Europeans to come to this continent uh, drew a picture of one of the storehouses that a, a tribe had, no door, no locks, And he wrote about how basically everyone shared. No one was afraid that someone was going to take advantage of them. So I know there's a lot more to you than just saying, hey, anything goes. Whatever anyone thinks is right is right. Whatever anyone thinks is wrong is wrong. And what I hear you saying between the lines is that there's a good chance that maybe a lot of us are living in a way where we're saying something's right, but on an internal level, we're not quite convinced of that, or maybe even feel strongly the other way. Am I am I reading too much into what you're saying?
2: No, not at all. Because let me let me put it this way: when you look into the face of a newborn baby, what do you see?
1: Innocence, I would say, is, is definitely one thing.
2: Absolutely, what you're seeing is pure love in the face of that child. You look at that same child when they're six, seven, eight years old. You see a change. Hmm. you don't see quite as much spark by the time they become teenagers. And then on into young adulthood, it becomes dimmer and dimmer. Oftentimes by the time they get into the later years, there is no brightness in the eye anymore. One of the things that I learned is we're born pure. We're born with a positive, if you will, self image, the love others, treat others with compassion, et cetera, et cetera. However, Each time we are wronged, Hmm. then a shadow goes over that bright light. And every time it happens, another shadow goes. And each time that bright light, which is that love and that innocence that we had as a baby, as a toddler, is being shadowed. The key then becomes we have to be able to understand that 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 shadows are causing fear. Fear about things we want other people to know about us. So we put those into what I call our vulnerability vault. Hmm. Hmm. we're afraid to let that stuff
1: out. So when I hear you describing a process where fear seems to multiply, the more difficulties we go through, the more times we're wrong, the more affronts, Uh, it's easy for that fear to grow. But I know you've talked about something that I think is really important that we highlight. And that is fear can have different manifestations, if you will. Aren't there different levels of fear?
2: There definitely are. Let's let's talk about what generates fear. Every one of us, our number one instinct is survival. Now most people think of that in terms of life or death, and that certainly is a level of survival. But we also have a level of survival in our professional life, our personal life, our financial life all those different areas of our life, we want to survive. Mm-hmm. Any time there is a real or a perceived threat to any one of those areas of our survival, our first reaction is fear, automatic.
1: Mm.
2: Now, it's not always bad, because fear keeps us sometimes from doing
1: stupid stuff. Okay. I'm
2: not going to walk. <laughs> I'm not going to walk across the interstate at rush hour in downtown Phoenix, Arizona. I wouldn't live to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid to do that. Mm -hmm. That's good. The problem is that oftentimes we take it too far. give you an example. Two gentlemen get on an elevator going to the 12th floor. It stops on the 6th floor. It's locked up. They have to wait for somebody to get them out. They miss their meeting, so they reschedule it, and they come back a week later. They walk up to the elevators. One man gets on the elevator. The other man says, I'll never, ever get on another elevator as long as I live. I'm walking to the 12th floor. What happened was immediately the gentleman that went to walking, he allowed fear to stop him from doing something that probably will never, ever happen to him again in his life. Hmm. But that one instance controlled his life when it came to going to upper floors in a building for the rest of his life because
1: of fear. I mean, that's a powerful illustration because uh, so often as a physician, I've seen people that have that single bad experience, and some would say they've overgeneralized it, and they they see that same scenario in so many places. It may not just be the elevator that they're afraid to trust. Uh, It may be the airplane. It may be the, the Uber driver. Is that common where this kind of fear would then bleed over into other settings as well?
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Matter of fact, uh, a friend—I I lost a very good friend of mine at the age of fifty. Uh, he was—he didn't—he he was supposed to get a, a colonoscopy, and one of the people in the group that we were in—it was a network group—said, "Oh, you don't want to do that. You know, you're going to get your colon punctured and yada yada yada." gave him all the reasons he shouldn't do it, and he didn't. Hmm. About five years later, he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Wow. Just lost him in March of this year.
1: That's I mean, tragic.
2: In, uh, in, in, uh, in October of last year, we lost him. They had the memorial in, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. But my point is, he fought it for four years. But if he'd have not listened to that individual telling that horrible story, he would have gotten it done. They would have caught it, and he would still be with us today. But because of that fear, he never did it. He never did it.
1: This is so relevant, Nick, because you know we're dealing with so many health concerns today, and it is so on point to remind people that often our fears are unfounded, there's so much fear mongering it seems today mm-hmm. where people have an agenda it seems to to terrify people that uh, they often are making poor decisions, some of them when it comes to their career, their relationships, but others, like you said, when it comes to their own health, life and death death decisions. How do we insulate ourselves or how do we uh, bounce back from the purveyors of misinformation, the purveyors of fear?
2: Again, very, very good question. Let's go back to how we get the levels of fear, then I will talk more about how we Uh, if you will, neutralize it or manage it so that we go ahead and do the things we need to do. Beautiful. Go for it. When we perceive a threat to any one of those survival areas, we react with a fear. Now, the level of fear is determined by our level of internal security. Hmm. Okay? So there's three things. In order to have internal security, we have to believe. We have to have faith. I had no fear going through three major surgeries and two procedures over a two year period because I had total faith in in the medical personnel working on me. Okay. Yes, I had a little concern, but I wasn't worried about it mm-hmm. because I I knew that they were I was going to be okay. Now, so we can depend on others, around. Right? we can have faith in those around us, but we know that sometimes they let us down. Right. Uh we can have faith in ourselves. I mean, you do a great job as a radio host. If somebody challenged you, that would you yeah, okay, fine. You know, that's their opinion. I don't worry about it, because I know I'm good at what I do. Strong confidence. The other area that we can have faith is in our Creator, Mm -hmm. knowing that He has given us the knowledge, skill, ability, and strength to handle everything that we need to handle during our lifetime. So, Once we can internalize where our faith is, where our belief is, then fear is basically under—we've managed it. It's not going to control us. Mm -hmm. But the key is we have to come to understand it does not make any difference what happens. We're going to be okay. We can handle anything that comes our way.
1: I appreciate that optimistic perspective. I know my listeners do as well, Nick. And uh, we do have to step away just briefly. But before we do, I know a lot of folks are wanting to connect with you. You've got a lot of great resources on the website. Give us that website one more time.
2: NickCoaches.com
1: Okay, so Nick, N-I-C-K, Coaches, C-O-A-C-H-E-S.com. We're going to step away just briefly. Nick Nicholas, staying by for our final segment. I encourage you to do the same. Got some powerful illustrations coming up and some very practical things for you and for your loved ones. Don't go away.
0: Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this.
4: The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse.
2: If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they shall often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions, they just take the orders. I got help so can you.
4: If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you. And we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers. Sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends? So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal. But taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age the physical and mental health effects, the poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? Can we talk?
0: For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinkingsamsagovernor you You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: You are back for the final segment of today's edition of the show. Nick Nicholas, my guest, he is uh, really helping us realize that there is hope. There is encouragement. There are reasons to Have confidence, even in the most difficult situation. So I don't know what you're facing today, but Nick has been saying we can trust a loving creator. We can have faith in those around us. Things are going to get better. Nick, you have a story that when we were off air, you said you wanted to share that helped bring this home to you.
2: Absolutely. Before I get into that story, i mentioned the levels of fear, Mm -hmm. and I need to just add a little bit to that. Sure. I, for For me, it goes from mild, I'm a little concerned, but I ain't going to worry about it, all the way to stage five panic. Okay. And that's all determined by our level of internal security and that belief that we're going to be okay, Hmm. that it's going to be all right. Regardless of what happens, I'm going to be okay. And so what I wanted to share was that I had worked with my coach for 12 or 13 years. He taught me a lot of things, and I understood them. And I had internalized quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. But then in December 2015, I had a near death experience. Mm-hmm. I had a lethal VTEC. Wow. I was 12 seconds away from death. They read it on my pacemaker. And during that time, I walked into the light and I experienced the love, the calm, the peace that there are absolutely no words and described and when i came out of it that remained with me and it completely changed my life
1: i appreciate you sharing your experience a lot of folks have uh, have looked at these near death experiences and i appreciate your you know the way you described it a near death experience some folks have said oh wow that light that sense of peace you know you're you're going to the afterlife others have said hey there's no afterlife um, it's just an altered state of consciousness others have said oh Well, the person's, you know, getting ready to go to sleep, trusting their creator. Listen, we could have a debate if we had open lines and we'd we'd hear, you know, the whole range of uh, discussions. But to me, what's so significant about your experience is it was your experience. That's what you felt. That's what you experienced. And you felt, if I'm understanding your story correctly, that it just gave you that assurance that there was a creator who was watching over you no matter what happened. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, you are.
2: As a matter of fact, after that, from that point to this day, I will have what you might call epiphanies.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: All of a sudden, I'll understand something in a way that I had never seen it. Mm-hmm. And I have people just approach me in the in the grocery store, in a restaurant, come up, and I, I had one gentleman come to me one day in a restaurant, and he said, are you a priest? And I said, no. He said, are you a uh, uh, you know, a member of a, a man of the cloth. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not. He said, what do you do? So I told him, he said, I knew I needed to talk to you. He brought his tray, sent with me. And for 45 minutes, he unloaded his life, telling me things he had never told anybody in his life.
1: Wow, wow. I'll tell you, that is a powerful ministry. And, you know, the amazing thing that I hear you saying, Nick, is uh, your story can be the story of any listener. Anyone who's gone through all kinds of tragedy, all kinds of turmoil, if you can get over that fear, if you can find that there's uh, reasons to be confident, there's you, you can have faith, you can go forward. Anybody has the tools, if you will, to be a healer of people. Is that making too much of a stretch to say it in those words?
2: No, not at all. Uh, matter of fact, they that's the only way that we're going to correct our situation in our nation and in our world today is each individual to be able to come to understand this to the point they can share it with others and help them to where the point that we're not controlled by fear and that all the fear-mongering and all the things you talked about have no negative effect on us at all.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Nick, someone who's listening today is wanting to pick up your book. It's called Reclaiming My Life. Is it more than an autobiography? It is.
2: Well, I say it is. It's, it's a mini-type autobiography. Uh, it, it talks about from how I grew up, what happened, the tragedies, how I came back, what I learned from the near-death experience, as well as the coaching that I got. And then I ended up with a method of changing their life to the point that they could feel confident, and that they can know that it doesn't make any difference what happens, they're going to be okay. Hmm. So that fear doesn't control them.
1: You know, I remember years ago, there was a book written, I'm okay, you're okay. Mm -hmm. Sounds a lot like the thesis that you're sharing with us. This idea of having some undergirding where bad things can happen to us, but it doesn't mean our life is bad or our future is bleak. Is there anything else, uh, stories, other important illustrations that would help someone make that connection? Because I know there's a lot of people right now that are struggling.
2: Well, there's of course, there's always uh, a million stories that can be told. Let me give you an example of one of my clients. I've got a client that's in a very high-stress industry, Mm -hmm. and I've been working with him. I started out working with him as a business coach. Because my 22 years of being a consultant and trainer and all of that, I also did coaching for mid-level and upper-level executives. And so I was coaching him that way, and all of a sudden I come to realize that what was really holding him back and causing him the big problem was fear. Mm. So I helped him to understand how we have fear, and I mentioned early in our interview, about thought process, feelings, and then connect to the emotion. And this one particular day, he was extremely emotional, very, very upset. And so I looked at him and I said, okay, let's see if we can fix this. And I told him about the, the thought process and so forth. I said, let's talk about that. I said, look back over your life, find that one particular event in your life where you just felt like everything in the world was right. You were happy. It couldn't, it couldn't get better. He said, oh, that's easy. He said, I'm French-Canadian, and I speak uh, fluent French. He said, I took my wife for 15 days to France, but we didn't go with the tourists. We lived in the economy. Mm. He said it was the greatest 15 days of our life. And he went into detail. Every time he started telling me detail, his face got brighter and brighter and brighter.
5: Mm. He completely
2: gave out all of the stress. All of the negativity was gone. I said, okay, you cannot hold two thoughts at the same time. So next time you find yourself feel negative or under stress, remember your trip to Paris, bring that down to one or two words. And he said, that's really easy. He said, Paris is the word. When I, uh, he said, when I say that, I remember the whole thing.
3: Hmm.
2: He went out and bought a little miniature Eiffel tower. It sits on his desk today. Every time he feels stressed, he picks that up and holds it and says out loud. Harris. His income has more than doubled since that time.
1: Just because he's dealt with his fears, he's able to make more reasoned business decisions, able to care for his own health, kind of the whole works, huh?
2: The whole thing. His relationship with his wife went to another level. They're just a wonderful couple. Uh, And so the key is how we think, how we think. To your listening audience, I will say this. Please, folks, look back in your life. Find that terrorist moment for you. And then bring it down to one or two words. Every time you think negative, every time somebody tries to tell you the sky is falling, say out loud those words. It will change your decision-making. It will change your perspective. And in the long run, it will change your life.
1: This, Nick, is so relevant. I was actually... Uh, with a group of other professionals, a psychologist was speaking with us and basically sharing a very similar message, just talking about how when we focus on positive emotions, positive experiences, it changes the current of our thinking. That is such a great message to, uh, to close the program on. We are just about out of time, but before we close out fully, Nick, any final words of encouragement for my listeners today?
2: What I would say to everyone is Right now, we're in what might be considered a dark period. We've got a lot of negative stuff being poured on us. We have no control over any of that. As we say in the military, that's way above my pay grade.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: However, you do have the opportunity to control yourself. Right. Because that's the only thing over which you have control. And the mindset of being in control helps to manage fear. When we feel in control, we normally do not feel a high level of fear. So realize that you have control because it doesn't make any difference what happens. You're going to be okay.
1: Great message, Nick. Thanks for driving that home for us. That's Nick Nicholas, his website, Nick Coaches, N-I-C-K, Coaches, dot His book, Reclaiming My Life. My journey back to God. Nick, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure and I hope that this has been helpful for your listeners.
1: Most definitely. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully you'll take this stuff and run with it, each of you, my listeners. As always, I'm wishing you the very best of health.
4: Native Voice One the Native American Radio Network.